Live from the center of the earth, girth. Yo, and welcome to My Summer Layer. I'm your host, Sam Yunin, and I have a special guest today. I don't even know how to fully kind of introduce her. So I'm going to let her introduce herself and what she does, what her day job is. It's a pretty cool gig, and this is why we have her in. So hit it. Well, uh, my name is Natalie, and I, uh, I'm an exhibition designer at the Royal Ontario Museum. That's so cool, isn't it? It's fun. Yes, it is. It's a pretty epic job. So what exactly does that mean? So translate that into English that people would understand. Because people have gone to the ROM and they like it and they see all the exhibitions and there was recently Vikings and things like that. But what does that actually mean? Think of a show, a big show that you've seen recently. You've mentioned Vikings, Mm -hmm. right? This was a traveling show. So we didn't design it from the very beginning. There were components that we've created, especially the components that dealt with Vikings in Canada. Mm -hmm. But you walk into the exhibition and you see the cases and you see pictures and you see text. Everything that surrounds you is exhibition design, either 2D or 3D. So Rome has two types of exhibition designers, which is 3D and 2D, and I'm the 2D designer. My job is to blob giant murals and lay out the labels and uh, decide where things are going to go, what color they're going to be, you know, what fonts we're going to use, etc. How important is flow as you work through, because you obviously have, the ROM has limited space. So once you put it into a room or set of rooms, an exhibit, how important is flow as people kind of meander and kind of go through an exhibit? Is that something also you're conscious of? Uh, That is something that gets determined at the very beginning. There is another stage to the exhibition design and that precedes everything, which is interpretive planning. Uh, An interpretive planner is like a storyteller and they work with us to determine what story we're going to tell and how we're going to tell it. And that's where the flow gets flashed out. And depending on the exhibition, it's either very straightforward where you go from display to display to display, or the way Rome tends to do it is that you get an opportunity to decide for yourself what you get to see first. Choose your own adventure. Yes, very much so. But because you need to see, you need to things in order, you need to read things in order, especially at the very beginning, you know, we utilize certain tricks to make sure that you read the intro panel first and you know what you're seeing and then you go and you read something else. So the flow is very important. That was a very long answer. And actually, this is where user experience comes in handy. Right, that's an important part of uh, exhibition design. How does it come in handy? Because user experiences, some people tend to think about it online or using certain graphics and like certain websites and things like that. How does that play out? Is that the choose your own adventure that you're kind of talking about? Well, user experience is any kind of interaction between the target audience and either a product or an experience. Right. So what you're talking about is, you know, digital user experience, like how you interact with an app or how do you interact with your phone. But you walk into a bar and you interact with a bartender. Is your bar on the left? Where are the washrooms? How fast is the service? How legible is the menu? You know, that's also user experience. You know, you go walk into a coffee shop, you can't order a coffee because, you know, you can't get to the barista. That's terrible user experience. Yeah, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Right? And um, I need that tea. Exactly. Uh, Going into a shop, right, how that process works is um, also user experience. It's a really fascinating area of study that is very important for uh, places like museums and art galleries. The way you're talking, it it seems to imply almost psychology too. Kind of understanding where people want to go. So obviously when people come to a bar, first thing they don't need, for example, is maybe not, they don't need the washroom. So you can put that a little bit further back. 
right? You want to put the actual bar a little bit closer to the door. You know what I mean? Because that's why people are here. Well, the foundation of user experience discipline is human interaction. And it is very much about psychology. It's very much about empathy, which is the for your user. Good user experience designer or researcher would put themselves into the shoes of their target audience and go from there. All right. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you touched on uh, empathy, but can you expand on that? Like, so I go to the ROM and I see the mm-hmm. giant dinosaur bones. Mm-hmm. That's always so cool when yes, I walk in. And then is there certain techniques that can then kind of lure me further into the museum or kind of uh, give me shiny objects or kind of stimulate my senses so that I want to go further? That tends to apply more towards temporary exhibitions, all right? Uh, With regards to permanent exhibitions, some of them are older than others. Museums are more about learning, you know, they're about giving you the information about things that you'd like to know. I think, to me personally, just the presence of dinosaur bones or meteorites or a medieval sacramental cup is <laughs> enticing. Mm. <laughs> you know, you show, show me the door and I'm going to run in, I'm going to keep uh, walking around. But I think one of the reasons why we put things on display within um, viewing distance of other things is so that people just keep walking. <laughs> but that's my personal opinion. I think it's um, it's not a question that I can easily answer. Yeah, but it's, it fits into that story that you're talking about, right? You said when people come in, you want them to have a story. You want them to have that flow. Is there a difference between a kid's story and an adult story? Because there's you read different things to kids at night. Right. When you're talking them in and then when adults are like growing up or whatever, they read Stephen King or something like that. So are you guys telling different stories for different types of people? When we design an exhibition, we try to put something in for both, you know, adults and kids. A very good example of that would be the Forbidden City exhibition that was on in um, 2013. So it was a blockbuster exhibition that showcased artifacts that came from the Forbidden City Museum in China. And uh, very beautiful. Uh, We had multi-million dollar objects on display that never left China before, never been seen outside of the Forbidden City Museum. A lot of it was clothing and pottery. So you'd think about it, okay, it it might be a little bit dry, but it all depends on how you tell that story. And you're absolutely correct. We added certain elements, how we interpreted the artifacts. Like, for example, there was a lot of symbology in Chinese art. There still is. So certain objects mean certain things, like uh, I believe bad means happiness. All right, so there are bats and there are butterflies and there are phoenixes and there are dragons and they're all over this exhibition in clothing and on swords and on, uh, you know, little teacups. We had, we basically saw where everything went and put icons on different labels. So children could see them and then they went around on a scavenger hunt looking for all the butterflies and looking for all the dragons and that's what makes it interesting whereas an uh, adult can look at it and just appreciate the object for its aesthetical value kids want to know more all right it's almost like you ha- you can't just get away with putting something on display yeah, you. there has to be a curious factor, right? Absolutely. Well, we all are curious. You think creatures. so still? Absolutely. Because I think sometimes school kind of leeches some of that out, and so you become less curious in a way. I think we simply have less time to practice and nurture and nourish our curiosity. Does working in the ROM kind of help you nourish your creativity? Because you must be seeing all kinds of stuff and reading all kinds of amazing things, including swords. Yes, 
<laughs> the answer is yes. <laughs> I actually got to hold uh, the, the subject of swords, the um, Viking replica sword. Oh, yes! That um, our uh, preparators, I believe, uh, created specifically for the exhibition. And it was done the way it would have been done back then. So it wasn't just uh, something made out of aluminum, painted to look like steel and just slapped into the case. No, it was a battle-ready replica with multiple layers of this beautiful steel design applied to it. And when they brought it in to show to the designers, I, I got so excited and they let me hold it. That's so cool. It was so light. It was incredibly light and I had no idea because, you know, we think of swords as something heavy, something that weighs five pounds, something that maybe you held at a fan expo or at like at a replica shop. No, I asked the guy who built it and he said, no, they're supposed to be no more than two pounds because you're waving it at other people in battle for hours. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like, how, how did we not think of that before, you know? Yeah, because I mean, well, I mean, we get conditioned by some of the Hollywood movies, though, right? Absolutely, so. and you know, you also you go into the uh, medieval area at the Rome, the third floor, and you see these giant sort of uh, double bastards. I think they're like the, the the German swords, the uh, German um, horseback swords, and they're the height of a grown man. I don't know what they did with them. I think they just carried them around for show because you swing that twice and you're out of breath. <laughs> well, you better make sure that you're very precise when taking <laughs> out your enemy. Yes. All right? Like, you can't be like the Vikings just kind of swinging all over the place and then hope you hit something. Well, Vikings were, well, as we all know, having watched the show, they were very hands-on in battle. So they needed uh, light swords that uh, stood up to wear and tear. And uh, their metallurgy was quite sophisticated, apparently. And so when you have something like the Vikings, you mentioned the who that made the sword? I believe it was one of the preparators on staff at the museum. We have a department, the preparator department, that they create the cases for us and uh, mounds for the artifacts. I think they have the coolest job in the world. Yeah, so what happens then, like you said, if the Viking thing is traveling and it goes going to the next city or the next country, what happens with that sword? Does it travel or then you just take it and then you start fighting crime? <laughs> I don't know where it went after the exhibition. I would like to know where it went. I, I don't have it. Okay. That's fair enough. That's a way, good way to keep your secret identity. So how does this work then? Is people from the ROM constantly going to other museums and seeing exhibitions and then contacting them and say, let's bring the Vikings here? Or are you kind of just going through like a calendar of some kind and like, it's the anniversary of some Viking battle. We need to do something and kind of celebrate that. How do you decide what to bring to the ROM or what to exhibit and display at the well, ROM? At uh, as a designer, I would not be able to give you a detailed answer, but from what I understand, our exhibitions and programmings department, I believe they're the ones in charge, people above me in a different department decide which exhibitions we're going to put on and which exhibitions we're going to host because uh, Rome does both. Sometimes we host exhibitions, like we did with the Vikings, and sometimes, more often than not, we design our own, like we did with the Forbidden City and like we did with the D-War. That was entirely ROM-designed exhibition about D-War fashions in Toronto. We do travel to other cities, and there's our... Uh, designers and other people from the Rome go to uh, conferences, museum conferences, and uh, collaborate with people from other museums, of course. Uh, we're a learning institution, and uh, we are constantly learning ourselves. You mentioned the fashion. You have an upcoming fashion exhibit. You were super excited about this when you were, when you were talking about off this, uh, like off air. So explain what this is, because you got all giddy. You're even smiling now, like we're talking about swords again. <laughs> I love 
museums so everything that goes on in them and it doesn't matter if it's the rom or the british museum or you know the smithsonian really gets me very excited yes we have a wonderful textile exhibition coming up it's a dual exhibition uh, we're showcasing two artists that collaborate and whose work echoes one another one is uh, iris von herpen she is a couture designer and she creates the most extraordinary things out of textiles you really have to see her work to really understand how remarkable and innovative it is for example for her first couture exhibition she created dresses out of golden umbrella armatures and they look extraordinary she designs dresses for Bjork, for Lady Gaga. You know, she's got dresses that look like water. She works with experimental textiles. She does her own R&D. She incorporated 3D printing into her work very early on. So we are showcasing her designs. Would you wear one of her designs? Maybe with the sword too and then oh fight crime? Oh my God, absolutely. I wouldn't know. I, I would be just too terrified to um, damage it because they're so beautiful. I think for me, the joy in her work is in observing as opposed to wearing it. I mean, ultimately, it is wearable art. It exists to house a human body. But I think just looking at her work is uh, delightful enough. And in collaborate, um, not in collaboration. One of her collaborators, who is Trentonian, is a um, local Canadian artist, Philip Beasley. Uh, he is an architect and a multidisciplinary artist who combines chemistry and um, artificial intelligence and technology into these absolutely extraordinary ex installations. Like, I've never seen anything like it like what he does nobody does what he does what happened just like cotton <laughs> <laughs> um i think we had an exhibition about iranian textiles in 2014 i think it had a lot of cotton okay yeah because i mean there was a time when that was what people wore velour like velour tracksuit yo that's sharp you know what I had one of those. You had? Past tense? Why wouldn't you do one present tense? I was eight. Oh. I may or may not still have one. <laughs> but that's the difference. Uh, no judgment. No yeah, judgment. no, that's no, right. I'm, I'm accepting. I, I'm happy where I am. You know what? When this is done, we're going to go on Google and we're going to find out if there is a museum or a gallery dedicated to velour tracksuits out there. Oh, and if there's not, can we start one? Um, who is going to bankroll us? Absolutely. We can do a Kickstarter. Okay. Uh, we'll figure something out and we will make it happen. We'll make the... I think it's a fascinating idea. I am sure that as you can turn a tracksuit into wearable art, you know, you get enough uh, rhinestones and embroidery and patches and then it becomes a uh, tool for self-expression. Like, there's absolutely no way of knowing how far this would go. I can't believe you just gave like a billion dollar idea just out into the world like that. That's amazing. High five. <laughs> <laughs> I'm full of creative ideas. That's what I do for a living. But you bring up a valid point, though. If there isn't or is a velour museum, and there should be. Absolutely. And I mean, I've been to a number of different kind of uh, museums. There's interior design museums. There's all kinds of... When you are traveling or going to different places, and you mentioned like the Smithsonian, which is one of the iconic museums in the world. Uh, the ROM is another one, which you obviously work at. Are you, are you always actively going to these museums when you travel and go to the city and kind of checking and taking notes on like how they do things and maybe stealing ideas or borrowing ideas? Uh, well, I wouldn't call it stealing or borrowing. I think every museum visit is a learning experience. So yes, I'm always actively learning. And uh, I think I would have to be dead to stop going to museums. Do you have a favorite museum? I know, well, the ROM's up obviously in the list, so we'll put the ROM aside. And then the Velour Museum's up there as well. We'll put that aside. Uh, but other than those two, do you have a favorite museum? I'll even give you a couple museums if it's a hard one to do, just one. 
Uh, yeah, I would have to say it will be very difficult to do just one. I admit I have not gone to as many museums in my life as I would have loved. It's really hard to pick one. Um, ooh, the British Museum, probably. Why? What what's makes you go, ooh, when you think about the British Museum? They just have all that stuff. All right. It's you walk in and you, you can be there for for a very long t- happy time. <laughs> <laughs> um, I love the, this is an art gallery, so it's a little bit different, but the modern Tate. Yes. That's an amazing one because there's a nice little balcony too where the cafe is and it's overlooking the Thames River and you can get a nice tea and then you can kind of check out all the displays and stuff and then take a break, get the tea and keep going. I like that. I agree. I absolutely agree. And uh, I would have to say Victoria and Albert Museum. Absolutely. And then we're kind of sticking to London, but there's like there's a whole world out there. Uh, you know, I've never been to Japan and I've never been to China. So maybe well, there are f- definitely museums out there that are absolutely extraordinary that I can't wait to see. We need to put the Velour Museum in Japan. That would be amazing. That would be a gangbusters. You know, I think you're onto something. Not bad, right? I think you are. All right. Not bad. Thank you. Aside from uh, these kind of cool 3D textile kind of uh, water dresses uh, exhibit, you have another really cool exhibit coming up. And I'm not 100% sure if I'm comfortable going to this because this is there's like a lot of creatures for this. Yes. So explain what this is and when it's coming. It's June something, right? June 16th? Yes, it is. It is June 16th. We have a wonderful exhibition coming from Australia, and it's all about spiders. There we go. Yes. It's going to be amazing, especially if you, if you like spiders. And they're awesome. They really are. And if you don't like spiders and you're not deathly terrified of them, give this exhibition a chance. You're going to come out loving them. You can actually have live spiders, like live specimens as part of this. This is not like just spiders encased in amber or something like that. You have live spiders. Well, I don't know if we have a spider encased in amber, uh, but uh, we do have 400 specimens coming and 29 of them are live. Snap. And you yes. actually have spider wranglers? That's yes. a thing? Yes, it's a thing. Um, we How do you get even a job like that? Like a I don't know. You know, like the, these people did not come to my school on their career day. Yeah, I know, right? You know, that like might have altered my career path <laughs> if I would known. Yeah, we have uh, t- three <laughs> spider wranglers, uh, one full-time, uh, two part-time. That and makes sense. they would be uh, in charge of uh, handling the some of the spiders who you get a chance to meet up close if you go to the exhibition and not only spiders we also have a giant desert centipede which is what it is it's a giant centipede that lives in a desert it's about on average seven inches long big thing with like 23 pairs of legs and giant pincers and Wait, wait, wait. That thing's not alive, right? Yeah, yeah it's alive. It's oh, alive. snap. Yeah. Okay. I mean, uh, I might be busy on June 16th. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sure you can. Um, it's going to be pretty busy, too, with all the people wanting to see it. So yeah. If you're not really into the giant desert centipede, we also have, um, oh, the dancing jumper. We have a dancing jumper spider. You know those cute, fluffy, colorful spiders that you see on YouTube? Yeah. Yeah, we have that, too. Okay, that's not bad. That's a little bit more more speed or whatever. Because I think if I saw that big one with the pincers and the, I might have to go get the sword from the Vikings or something. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's going to be amazing. You know, I um, kind of got to see what is going to, content-wise, what's going to be on show. And uh, it's going to be very informative. Kids are going to love it. All right. Uh, you're going to find out how they breathe how they hear, how they hide, what eats them, what they eat. Spiders breathe? I don't ask a dumb question, but that I guess that I makes think sense. So. I'm pretty certain they do. I think everything alive breathes. Really? Oh, okay. Yeah, I'll go with you on that. I'm not a um We'll have biologist. to go to the spider exhibit. Yeah. Yes, you'll have to find out exactly how they breathe, and for that you'll have to go to the exhibit.
Okay. How did you end up at the rum? Because you've been doing some graphic design stuff before for other companies. So how did then you transition from graphic design to other companies? I think you're doing stuff with the Royal Bank and things like that. Um, well, I've been doing graphic design for 15 years. And uh, I am a multidisciplinary designer, uh, which means that I can do pretty much anything. Like I can design you a website. I can design you an exhibition. I can design you package or advertising campaign. Interestingly enough, narrow specialization in graphic design is a fairly recent development uh, in our field because if we go as uh, you know recently as the 1960s, uh, most of the designers who practiced back then, like Max Bill, for example, he designed everything. He was a typographer, he was an architect, he could design you you know, an advertising campaign, a house, he also painted, he did sculpture based on mathematical formulas. He was just an all-around extraordinary creative person. And a lot of designers in the past were like that. Tibor Kalman, too. He kind of did all kinds of stuff with the Benetton colors and magazine and stuff like that. I think so. All right. I, I love his work. And most of them were like him right so for me to go from you know marketing and advertising to designing exhibitions really wasn't the stretch and I actually see it more and more now where our field success in our field demands multidisciplinary capabilities but going back to your original question exhibition design is my first love I started in graphic design as an exhibition designer and um, then I wanted to learn as much as possible about the field that I was in and it just took me on this journey and one day I bumped into a friend of mine on a um, staircase at St. George subway station and she said hey what are you doing it's not far from the rum no and I was like well I am here and I told her where I was working at the time I was on contract and it was coming to an end. She's like, oh, well, um, I'm at the room and uh, they're looking for uh, someone to work on um, one of the exhibition that's coming up. Um, you should, uh, you know, reach out to them. Synchronicity. Yes. And of course I did. I've been wanting to work at a museum in any capacity since I was probably eight years old. You know, I always joke that if I wasn't a graphic designer, I'd be a janitor at a British museum. <laughs> yeah. You know, because... I don't have to deal with people. <laughs> <laughs> that is a lot easier, isn't it? <laughs> yes. And here there was this incredible opportunity to work at the Rome, which is an extraordinary museum. I believe one of the top 10 research museums in the world. It's up there with the Velour Museum. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And of course, I was going to jump on that opportunity, and I did. And uh, they gave me a call back, and I went to talk to them. And, um, yeah, I got the job. Nice. So it worked out, and it's been brilliant. You mentioned, in terms of graphic design and in terms of exhibitions, you mentioned success. How do you know then something is successful? Or is that even does that apply? So if you have the Vikings or you have Spider Exhibition, how do you know that it's quote-unquote successful when people walk away and they're less ignorant? Like, I know there's the obvious, which is there's a lot of traffic. Yes. Right? So and that's important for the museum so you stay alive and stay open. But beyond that, how do you know is something successful? Well, as you mentioned, attendance is the most obvious measure of success. Like, for example, the Dior exhibition that just wrapped up doubled the estimated attendance in the time that it ran. So it was hugely successful. Um, there are some ways, they're very new, they're not in utilized in many museums, like potentially we can measure how much time people spend at any particular um, display, right? How long do they spend reading something, right? That's going to come later and hopefully it will uh, get used more and more often. But the measure of success in the exhibition is um, 
I think general reaction of people, you know, you come down from your office and you walk around, you see are people excited? You know, social media is a great measure. Are people tweeting about it? Are people taking pictures? Are they posting it on Instagram? This is actually something that we can measure mm-hmm. uh, with hashtags. And that's what the marketing department does, or one of the things that our marketing department does. Are you still surprised whenever something gets ex- announced, like a new exhibit or something like this? Are you still surprised that people are like super excited that like as we kind of have more YouTube videos and more things on Google, like you can just Google spiders and spider videos. People still have a desire to come to a, a museum and to kind of see these exhibits and kind of interact with the spiders and the spider wranglers. Well, museums and art galleries still have an edge in our world because at least for now, until virtual reality is has taken over completely and is accessible to everyone. Museums and art galleries can provide an immersive experience. And we humans as creatures need that. We need to be inside a space and we need to see and hear and interact and be dazzled. That's something that a museum can do that um, a YouTube video cannot mm-hmm. at the room we can't pump smells <laughs> into an exhibition because there's um, you know um, allergic possibility right and we are a government institution but commercial exhibitions commercial experiential installations can do that you can do extraordinary things you know with sound and light and smell that will transport you completely you have the bat cave yes we do thankfully it does not smell like one <laughs> no thankfully not um do you get scared ever going through the bat cave or are you used to it now oh no not at all if anything i don't think ever anyone has ever been scared of the bat cave i think that we have the reverse oh. problem we had to put uh, i'm not sure if there are um, um cameras in there, uh, but um, I think there's signs telling people to move along. Uh, it was quite a makeout spot. The bat cave was a makeout spot. Yes, it <laughs> was. People went to the bat cave to make out. That makes a little sense, I guess, because it is a little dark and. Yeah, it's dark and it has a lot of nice little quiet corners. Yeah, it's a very popular spot. Kids love it. That's romantic too, I guess. Yep. All right, that works. Are you still guys going to do the Friday nights too? Speaking of the romance. Uh, yeah, absolutely. That's that's an ongoing thing. It's very popular. People love it. I mean, who wouldn't want to drink with the dinosaurs? Yeah, here you go. That's what should be the tagline for it. You should like from give that to the marketing department. <laughs> oh, I think they're doing a fantastic job as is, right? I mean, if you've ever been in the area on a Friday night and walked past the ROM, like the lineup is just way past the subway entrance sometimes and that pleases me immensely because that utilizes a space first of all it breaks down some of the psychological barriers that people might have when they think about museums like these big stuffy old boring colonialist Mm -hmm. institutions you know, uh, some people don't feel welcome there. And I think that Friday Night Live and also First Thursdays at the AGO doing great in uh, bringing people through the doors and showing them, you know what, this is wonderful. It's beautiful. It's not scary. Come and visit us during the day when there's unfortunately no wine. Oh, okay. I brought up the uh, fighting crime and swords and stuff uh, because you are a nerd as as well. Not just a museum nerd, but a sci-fi nerd. I am all-around nerd. So <laughs> 100%. You mentioned like being interested in museums at, as an eight-year-old little girl. Uh, but what kind of came first? Was it the nerdery or the museum nerdery? I grew up in a nerd family and a sci-fi nerd family um my parents uh worked for the russian space program 
So science and space and space exploration were a big part of my life growing up. And um, any kind of scientific discovery and exploration was very much encouraged, right? We got taken to museums. We got books to, we being uh, myself and my older sister, um, I remember reading books about this famous British zoologist, Gerald Darrell. Um, there's actually a show on TV called The Darrells based on his memoirs, which is quite fun. And being fascinated by the animal world and, you know, having the books about dinosaurs and uh, my favorite, The Biblical Hills, that's about uh, archaeology in Egypt. I mean, if you're a kid, you have this extraordinary wild imagination and it, it gets fed. If it doesn't get stifled, I think you just, you have no choice but grow up a nerd. <laughs> <laughs> what, it, what, what kind of nerdery do you consume these days? TV shows or movies or books or where are you falling on the nerd spectrum? All of them? I'm not that much of a TV watcher. I actually don't have a television set. All right. I, um, at the moment, I'm reading a um, historical fiction book about Richard III um, called Ravenspur. It's like a doorstop of a book. <laughs> yes, those right. historical fictions. <laughs> yes. I know. Uh, but before that, I've reread uh, Contact. Oh, my God. It, Carl that, that Sagan. Yes. Yeah. That book doesn't age. It's so extraordinarily well written. And it's written from a female perspective, by the way. And... Uh, it's so well done. Did you like right. the movie as well? You know, I read it. I, I watched it such a long time ago. I remember that the book got really condensed. Yeah, I mean... For obvious reasons. Mm -hmm. And a lot of characters that are uh, in the book kind of got thrown out. I enjoyed it. I think that um, Jodie Foster did a great job. Mm -hmm. All right. In terms of something like that, like the the nerdery, does that influence some of your graphic designs, especially too, like you mentioned, uh, having a, a Russian background? And they were very good with graphic design and colors and things like that. Does that also influence the work that you do and still are doing? Subconsciously, maybe. But I think as any creative person will tell you, pretty much everything that we come in contact influences us. Good question. I mean, I remember I designed a logo for um, like a jewelry brand, and I what I used in uh, a vignette was based on traditional Russian illustrations, chuchlama, uh, right? It's an illustrative style, right? And they just it's floral designs that were done a, cer a certain way. It worked with that specific target audience and for that particular brand so I used it but overall I don't see it bleed that much into my work I mean I came here when I was 12 years old so yeah <laughs> um, I'm I think I'm very much influenced by historical periods more than any specific discipline so how do you balance then the historical periods and your love of museums, which are obviously like the Vikings we talked about for the ROM, that's old school. The dinosaurs are all old school. It's all very past. But then how do you balance that with your sci-fi, which tends to be very futuristic or very forward-looking? How do you balance the two? Or you don't find that it's uh, there is no tension between the past and the future? Well, I'm a Gemini, so I'm of two minds about everything. Okay. <laughs> Why did you say this at the beginning? Um, honestly, when um, design is very audience-oriented, right? It's It can be art, but very often it has a purpose. So whenever a designer creates something... It's tailored to who's going to see it, who's going to use it. And whatever works at the time, whatever works for that audience, is what becomes inspiration. I'm not sure if I'm phrasing it well. There shouldn't... Like, there are some designers who design everything and it looks the same no matter what. But 
Um, and I'm not saying that's the wrong way, you know, it works for them and works for their clients. But good design just gives the audience what they, uh, what they need, all right, um, regardless of uh, what inspires it. In terms of working in design and graphic design and working in a museum and combining your sci-fi nerd, I might be reaching here, but... No, that's, that's all good. Does this give you a better or deeper appreciation of time? Because you have these artifacts that where time is frozen, like we, we, I'm going back again to the Vikings, but the dinosaur bones, all these things, and time is frozen. It's, yeah, it, you, you can feel it, all right? You can feel it and then you cannot, because as humans, we're always existing in the moment. And sometimes it's hard to wrap your head around something that's been around for so much longer than you. I was recently working on um, on a display for this tiny fossil that was uh, found in Canada. And it's one of the oldest existing fossils in the world. And it's billions of years old. Not millions, billions. And it's just like this tiny fluffy little caterpillar thing and I remember looking at it and thinking wow this thing was alive when the world was completely different the primordial soup or something yes, yes absolutely the sense of time it, it it creeps up on you once in a while you know it it's strangest moment I think most of the time you don't notice it but I'm make a point of stopping and appreciating that okay people wore this before the new world was discovered or somebody drank out of this 2000 years ago i don't know for me that's exciting it's humbling all right and also encouraging because we're only here for a very short period of time and uh you know, there's not much left behind. But these people left something behind and now we're here looking at their stuff and wondering who they are and in a sense remembering them. Which is kind of why Egyptians put themselves in, you know, put the hieroglyphs on everything and make sure that, you know, everything that they built lasts, you know, five, seven thousand years. Yeah, they did it right. Yeah, they did it right. Last question, but it's a very important question. This might be also another difficult question, but if I then use a girth radio time machine and you can go back in time to one era or one type of uh, like historical, I don't know, something of significance, who do you go back and see? Like, do you go back and see a historical figure like Napoleon or do you go back to the Victorian era? Do you go hang out with Da Vinci? I want to make it difficult. You got to go back one trip. <coughs> this is a mean question. I, re <laughs> I realize that. I, but I thought as a sci-fi nerd and as a uh, somebody who's got an avid curiosity of museums, this would be a fun one. You have no idea how many things are running through my head right now. I'm giving you one trip. I'm being <laughs> mean about it. I told you up front. Um, ooh. Well, it'll also have to be something lucrative. <laughs> yeah, I mean, <laughs> we got to fund the Velour Museum somehow, right? Um, you know what? Oh, man. Would you go I hate you. I really hate you. I'm going to take an easy way out. You're going to say like uh, dinosaurs or something? No, no. Um, I'd go back and see dinosaurs. Yeah. That, well, actually, that would be awesome. I wouldn't stay around long because then you... <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how long I'd last, so... I wouldn't wander too far from the time machine. Okay, can you guarantee me that the time machine is not going to malfunction? Yeah, yeah, it's not a sci-fi novel. We'll, <laughs> we're just going to go, you and I will go, we'll go to whatever area you pick, and then we come back. 
Now, mind you, that's the start of every good sci-fi. A lot yeah, of good sci-fi. Yeah, you know, like, and then, you know, right? some lever yeah. you know, gets stuck, and here we are, you know, we are allergic to everything, mm-hmm. and there's bacteria in the water that we've never experienced. <laughs> right. And, you know, we die in the next, like, 15 hours yeah. from hives. So, that's a good, that's probably a short story. That's not really a movie. <laughs> that's not really lucrative in terms of a trilogy. You gotta get something like Back to the Future. Mm-hmm. All right? Where it goes back. But, yeah, so... Can I can I have options? Okay, let me right. hear your options, and then I'll s- decide how mean or not mean to be to you. Okay, so this is pretty recent. I would like to see Franz Liszt play live in concert. Ooh! All right, he was the original rock star. Mm-hmm. And um, obviously, he's long dead, and I am just the biggest uh, classical music nut as well on top of all my nerdom yeah all right that's another facet in my nerdom and what I was the one that caused the controversy was it rites of spring Duh. oh no, no no that's just that's Shostakovich Mussorgsky I think he was there was a big controversy at the time on that one pa- the ri- no the rites of spring is uh, was that Beethoven was a modern Okay, you're, ma- you're making me Google things. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I you cannot answer that we question. We started this on curiosity. All yes. right, forget uh, the tangent. So, then. yeah, I would love to uh, watch him play live to see if that was really as extraordinary. I would like to go back to the Shakespearean time to see whether or not Will Shakespeare was actually uh, really existed. Oh, okay. <laughs> that is lucrative. <laughs> All right. Uh, I mean, I know that when I come back, no one's going to believe me either way. But, um, and, um, hmm. just walk through the streets of ancient Rome. I think that would be so extraordinary. Like, I don't think that I would want to meet any historical figures because we know enough about them. They were mostly assholes. Go back <laughs> in time. That should be like a historical <laughs> book or something. Yeah. Uh, all your heroes are assholes. Yeah. Um, I would like to walk through the streets and how to, s- how, uh, to see how normal people live. If anything, uh, if I had a choice, I'd go back repeatedly and um, find out how women live how women created and um i mean that's always the tough thing too with sci-fi is like women's uh time travelers some for a certain point they can't kind of go back right because if they get stuck somewhere or whatever then uh it gets a lot harder yeah that's time travel is tricky isn't there a show on television right now about a woman from the uh, First World War, then she goes accidentally back in time to, like, Scotland? Outlander. Isn't oh. that what it's about? Sure, I haven't watched Outlander. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know what? Somebody I know watches it. As I mentioned, I don't have television. Mm-hmm. I really... It just... I want to go everywhere and see everything. I don't have a snappy answer for you. I guarantee you it'll come to me in five minutes. Yeah, of course. <laughs> but before we wrap up, just to tease you, would you, if you use a time machine, would you go back in time, as you said, to see all that stuff? Or would you go forward as well, if you could go forward? Oh. This has nothing to do with the ROM. I was just curious. No, As a sci-fi nerd... Oh, that's perfectly fine. That's a difficult challenge. Um, I would have to say... Like, a part of me would like to know, okay, you know what, the planet is going to be okay. You know, uh, we figured it out. We went to the stars. We cleaned up all the plastic. And, you know, the whales are okay. The bees are okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then, Are we on Mars? <laughs> You know what? I don't even think we should be going on Mars. There are there better places to go. I think one of the reasons why everyone is pushing for Mars is because it has that sort of hold on our imagination as a close, visible planet and has had hold on uh, human imagination because of science fiction for a very long time. Martians. Yeah, I don't think it's reasonable. Uh, we should be going to Europa. That's a much better place to go. Or under the ocean. We haven't even mapped exactly. any of that. 
you know, and yes, I think there are a lot of places to explore here. You know, as you mentioned, oceans, there's so much we don't know. But the short answer, you know what, I would rather go back in time, you know, because there are still a lot of things we don't know about our history. There's a lot that has been lost, that is a lot of that has been, uh, is being uncovered now. And uh, I would like to participate in that. The future will take care of itself. All right. That's positive note. We have to end it there. And the Ram is doing his job to preserve some of that history and to keep it alive so that people can continue to interact with it. Absolutely. Well, we have 10 million items, specimens, artifacts in our collection. And um, Rome has this extraordinary program on right now called uh, Rome Online. They're digitizing artifacts, uh, objects in their possession. And by digitizing, I mean they're going in with macro cameras and they're shooting it from all the angles and they're putting it online in a database free of charge. And uh, so far, I believe 10,000 objects have been digitized we are going to keep pushing so anyone who does not have access to the museum or doesn't have the time or needs to research viking swords or you know chinese textiles they can just go to rome online and look at things up close and see uh, the objects in a way you can often not even see in the museums. You can see them from the front, from the back, from the side. Zoom in, see the tiny embroidery and, you know, artist marks that you would not be able to see at in the case. All right. Let's end it there because that's really cool and exciting. Thank you, Natalie. Thank you for all the staff at the ROM, for all the stuff you guys do and for all the cool exhibits and kind of keeping uh, that one part of Toronto very vibrant, very alive. So I appreciate that. I have some friends, they have some kids, and they love seeing the dinosaurs every time. They like all the other exhibits, but just walking in and seeing the dinosaur bones, it's just a thrill for them. Dinosaurs are awesome. You just, yeah, they're the best. They're the highlight of the day. You walk through the doors, you see the dinosaurs. Uh, so um, it's, uh, what's the website for the ROM? It's rom.org? O-N Okay, thank you. I'll make sure I'll post it. And uh, so this has been my summer layer. I'm your host, Sam Yunin. Thank you.